You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Very good evening to you and thanks for tuning in to tonight's Best Possible Taste with me, Sharon Noonan. I have a really fantastic and interesting lineup of guests this evening. Sid Sheehan, who is a chef nutritionist from Nourished by Nature in County Kerry, is here for his monthly slot. I'll be talking to Regina Sexton from UCC about a collection of 19th century letters that reveal Ireland to be a country of feasting during the famine. In my travels out and about, I meet Will Taylor from the award-winning Glastry Farm Ice Cream. And Dr Claire Gilsonen, who is a culinary arts lecturer at GMIT, is going to unravel the science behind our taste buds. Before we welcome Sid Sheehan to the studio, here's how you can get in touch with me. You can drop me an email, s.noonan at live.ie, or send me a tweet at Queen of Org, as in Queen of Organisation. And as you know, I'm always on the lookout for food and drink news, interesting stories, and of course, course delicious recipes so don't hesitate to get in touch and one man who might have a recipe or two for us this evening you never know is Sid Sheehan from County Kerry's Nourished by Nature so let's get him into the studio. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Sid, you're very welcome to the studio this evening. Thanks, Sharon. It's always great to be in. And as you were coming in there, you said you wanted to talk tonight about a weight loss programme that you're running. Yeah, so this is a weight loss programme. It will run for four consecutive Monday nights. Now, this is not a cookery class, uh, but we hold it at the cookery school. Uh, so we had a really successful um, group throughout the year. Um, we had maybe eight to ten people that participated in the class. Um, so each week I would give um, a meal plan, um, all the recipes to go with that. And each week then we'd also cover a specific topic. So maybe something like blood sugar balancing, uh, hormone balancing. We look at people's relationship with food, why they have... Um, just trying to break those bad eating habits and look at long-term or achieving your long-term weight loss goals. Do you weigh the people? We do weigh the people in, but um, they don't need to worry. They're not going to be paraded around in a leotard or anything like that in front of everybody. Um, it's done nice and discreetly. You're taken off to the side and you're weighed. And then I'll kind of discuss each person's, um, would say, their weight loss goal for the following week. And whenever you talk then about the nutrition and the different recipes and the blood sugar and everything, do you think about an individual specific needs or is it very much a group discussion? No, we look at everybody individually. So obviously things like your age, um, age, sex, activity level, all of these are taken into account. So somebody in the group might only have two or three stubborn pounds to lose. So obviously they're going to be far different or completely different from somebody that would have maybe four or five stone to lose. But it is looking at nice, slow weight loss. It's not a quick fix diet. It's, you don't come to the class and you know, after the four weeks expect to have reached your target weight. It's just changing your relationship with food and your eating habits. How many people is it for? Is it a small We take group? up to 10 people. So it's nice and personal, a nice small group. Um, the last one that we ran, um, I think at the end of the course, at the end of the four weeks, we had eight to 10 people. And as far as I can remember, there was a combined weight loss of about 70 pounds. So it's a nice... It's about know, five stone. Yeah. Yeah, so, that's um, great. So it's probably about a half a stone uh, for each participant on average. God, so obviously some of those would have lost two or three pounds. Others would have lost maybe 12, 14 pounds. It all depends on how much you have to lose to start off with. Exactly, yeah. And even some of those people have come back to me since 
and they've said that they felt they couldn't pinpoint exactly what it was or what changed with them, but they no longer craved the foods that they craved. The sugar cravings were gone. Their energy levels were up. And this was just, again, highlighting what they already had in their diet, highlighting why they should change their eating habits and then going forward just to keep that up and make it a long-term lifestyle change, really. It's four weeks. It's on a Monday night starting next Monday night. What time is it on at? That is from seven to eight. So it's only an hour then. It's only an hour. Yeah. And for four weeks, like it's not much of a commitment. How much it's is not, it to do it? Um, it's 70 euros for the four week programme. And obviously with that, you get your full seven day meal plan and all the recipes to go with that as well. But again, just to highlight to people that this is not a cookery class, so there won't be a cookery demo involved in it. It is more kind of based on the nutrition side of things. What sort of recipes do you cover? Um, we cover everything right through from healthy breakfasts, juicing, um, healthy snacks then to carry with you to work instead of, I think that's where most people will kind of hit a stumbling block. Do you know, when they go to work, um, they're not prepared, so they will end up going for a sandwich or something from a deli counter. So it's getting prepared the night before, carrying healthy snacks with you, um, then healthy lunches, lots of soups and stuff like that at this time of year. Um, kind of one pot dinners that you can prepare in advance then so you'll have them ready and a lot of the stuff again it's designed as a freezer filler so you can do all your cooking on one day off if you like would the meals and the recipes would they be family friendly they're all family friendly as well so that's again another thing you know a lot of people will be put off if you're on a weight loss program I don't like to call it a diet I just don't like the word diet itself because straight away it conjures up kind of notions of negativity um, so this weight loss program, um, the healthy eating plan, is designed for the whole family. So you know to get veg and into kids and stuff as well. Um, so yeah, it is definitely uh, family friendly. Okay, and if there are people listening who, because you said like there's no cookery demonstrations or anything like that, but if somebody wanted to come along to a cookery class, have you anything coming up? Absolutely, in yeah, November? we do have a few different classes actually coming up um, this time of year. Um, I think. Evenings like this, you know, the evenings are a little bit shorter, they're darker, so you're not going to be out and about doing your garden and stuff. So it's a good time of year to come to an evening class. Um, We have a few coming up. There's one, it's a one-pot wonder class, actually. So that ties in nicely with the the weight loss program. Um, Again, all of these are geared around healthy eating, getting in kind of nutrient-dense foods into the whole family. Uh, stuff that can be prepared in advance again so if you're rushing home from work at 6 or 7 in the evening um, instead of going you know, for a frozen pizza or a bag of wedges or something like that at least you can have your meal prepared the day before or at the start of the week like I said have them all in the freezer take out what you need the night before um, and again, like all of the classes that we do and all the recipes, they're as well as being family friendly, they're budget friendly as well. So it is cooking on a budget also. So give us an example of one of the dishes that you'd learn to make at the One Pot Wonder. You okay. stand up there and you demonstrate how to make all of them and then people get to taste them. Yeah, so none of the classes are hands-on. So everybody sits around, they get to see everything being done step by step. Um, obviously, you get to eat everything on the night as well, with all, as with all the classes. Um, so just a typical one would be something like incorporating in lots of veg, different um, proteins and stuff, like animal proteins rather than, or sorry, plant protein rather than too much animal protein. So things like chickpeas, beans, lentils, all that type of stuff as well. So nice casseroles, stews, um, nice kind of heavy wintry kind of soups and stuff like that as well. Um, Using brown rice as opposed to white rice or pasta. 
No, that's a, there are lots of meat dishes there, but if you're a vegetarian, what about some vegetarian Yeah, courses? we do cover some vegetarian in the one-pot class anyway, but we do have a vegetarian class coming up on, um, that's on the 19th of November, and that's like modern vegetarian cookery. So again, um, if you're a vegetarian and if you're going out to restaurants, you're always going to be faced with more or less the same choices. It's going to be veggie lasagna, a vegetarian pasta, stir-fry. So I think people are just a little bit sick of those at this stage. So this will be showing people again how to use quinoa exactly what is it how to cook it how to prepare it um, different types of bin, uh, lentils beans bits and pieces like that obviously one of the main concerns that people have with vegetarianism is that they're not getting enough of the nutrients that you would normally get from meat and it's how do you you get those into you with just vegetables exactly so this is another thing that we cover with all the classes and particularly with the vegetarian um, so that you are getting all the essential nutrients all the essential fats um, so you will get all of your um, and even if you're not a vegetarian it is advisable to kind of gear the family towards one meat-free day in the week. Um, all of us should be doing that anyway. Just as a general rule with healthy eating, um, avoid meat at least one day a week. Give your break or give your body a break from trying to break down animal protein because it just puts our, our body under too much stress and pressure. So um, you will get all the, all the essential nutrients and vitamins and minerals, everything though. And given that we're nearly, uh, we're kind of getting into pre-Christmas season... Um, you have a, a finger food tapas and wine matching evening coming up. Yes, so this one, um, it's something that we did last year as well. Uh, that one is on the 27th of November. So again, if you're entertaining at home, all of us will be doing a certain amount of it over Christmas. Now, um, I think the majority of people will end up going for the frozen uh, party mix that you'll buy in the supermarket. There's nothing wrong with those. They're tasty. They're very handy. They're quick. But if you are into cooking and if you want to impress your guests just that little bit more. So we'll be covering lots of different finger food ideas. Again, stuff that can be prepared in advance. You don't have to spend the whole evening in the kitchen. You can get some of this stuff done the day before. I'll show you what you can do, how to reheat it. Um, we will have a local wine expert there as well on the evening who will be bringing along different wines to match, to go with the finger food. And also he'll be giving tips on what wines to have with the Christmas dinner. That sounds great and I know a lot of people listening at the moment will be looking at their Christmas party night out yeah. and you actually have something special that you can offer for that as an alternative to going out to the... Again, this is something that has really taken off for us um, throughout the year but particularly at Christmas. So if you, even if it's a small work party, we take groups from six to ten people um, and it's a cookery demo slash dinner. So it's a bring your own wine night or whatever you prefer to drink. Um, so you book the place for the night. The kitchen is yours for the night. Everybody sits around, relaxes. Um, they can watch everything that's been done step by step each course as it's prepared and cooked and presented it's dished up everybody gets to eat and it's a nice kind of long slow evening um, instead of going out to a busy restaurant kind of at that time of year um, because you know you're going to be faced with really busy restaurants a lot of places you know if you want just a nice quiet kind of a setting instead of a busy restaurant where you're going to be rushed off your table maybe after two hours so these are really good evenings and um, they're ideal just for a group of friends or like I said for a small office party or something like that. In terms then of the cost for the classes and for the, the party type night, what sort of money are you talking about? Okay, so for the bring your own wine night, where we usually cover maybe something like a five to six course tasting menu, that is 30 euros ahead. 
um, which again, you're going to spin that going out to a restaurant anyway. And plus you can bring your own wine, which is going to cut down the cost. And all of the other classes then are 25 ahead. So again, the one pot class, the, um, the vegetarian, all of those are 25 per person and they take about two and a half hours to bring your own wine night goes on a little bit longer generally people would maybe book the kitchen for 7 seven thirty, and i would be finished cooking then by about ten thirty. after that they can just sit back and relax and finish off whatever drink they brought with them so no specific recipes tonight sid but plenty of opportunities there to to tap into your wealth of knowledge absolutely by signing up to one of your classes there and for people to get all the details okay so we actually have a new website um, you can have a look at it it's nourishedbynature.ie uh, you can follow us on Facebook at nourishedbynaturelistol and I can give out the number as well if anybody would like to inquire or make a booking it's 87 Fantastic. Thanks so much for coming in tonight and you will be back in November and you're going to be talking about edible gifts Absolutely, for Christmas. Yeah. That, that sounds good. good yeah, definitely. Bring in some samples now. I sure will. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a million. Thanks we'll talk to you then. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Thanks again to Sid. And if you go to any of the courses he highlighted, please let me know what you thought. Or indeed, if you happen to attend any other cookery courses around the country that you feel are worth telling the listeners about, please get in touch by sending me an email s.noonan at live.ie. Still to come tonight, in my travels out and about, I meet Will Taylor from the award-winning Glastry Farm Ice Cream. And Dr. Claire Gilson, who is a culinary arts lecturer at GMIT, is going to unravel the science behind our taste buds. But before that, it's time to go over to the phone to talk to Regina Sexton, food and culinary historian at UCC, about a collection of letters that reveal Ireland to be a country of feasting during the famine. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Regina, you're very welcome to the programme this evening. And thank you very much for, for taking interest in our story. You're a food and culinary historian at UCC and you're involved in a book about George Boole. Just tell the listeners who he is first. George Boole um, was a young mathematician who came to UCC um, in the years after the famine, um, after 1845. And UCC was, was, was a new university at the time, um, and he came as the university's first professor of math. And in time, he would go on to produce, while he was still in Cork, in fact, he would go on to produce his seminal work called The Laws of Thought. Uh, and in that, he, he had an approach to algebra and logic, which I suppose, just very simply put, became sort of the foundation stone for the way we think about math and so on and its application, it became kind of the foundation stone for what we now know as the, I suppose, the IT age, really. So I suppose we're delighted to have the connection between George Boole and, and his incredible work and UCC. And this year is going to be his 200th birth- birthday, his bicentenary, and in fact his birthday is on the 2nd of November. And while most of the focus has been on his math legacy, he actually wrote a lot of letters home whenever he was at he did, and UCC. I he did. Um, he did. And he, 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 I suppose if we do know about George Boole, it's as you correctly say, it's in the legacy of his approach to math and so on. And a biography has been written of him by uh, Professor Des McHale, who was formerly 
professor of maths here at UCC, so that's the official biography. But I suppose what the university was also trying to do was to maybe introduce another side to him, a kind of, I suppose, a more human side. And um, they commissioned a, just relatively, relative to the biography, a small publication that was looking at, I suppose, kind of the more human side of him. So there's, you know, there's essays in there about his family home, his family and the descendants who are still alive, actually, um, his family tree, his genealogy. And then I did a little bit about food by looking at the letters, because when he was in court, he wrote a lot of letters to, I suppose they were like the texts of the day, really. So he would have written to his friends and colleagues but also, I suppose, letters where he could be more personal and more himself to his his mother, and in particular to his sister, Marianne. And in those letters, I suppose, I saw a lot of um, what he um, his encounters with food in Ireland at this quite extraordinary time, and you know, from 1849 onwards, because it was, as I said, still in the middle of the, 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 the famine period. Um, so I was interested to see what he what he said and his observations about food. From those letters. And have these letters been preserved since he wrote them well over a hundred years ago? Um, they have and um, the, the collection of letters are in the archives section, the special collection section of the Bull Library here in UCC. Um, so uh, it's, I suppose kind of in, in some ways quite moving to see a letter written by such a famous man with the days on it and you know you know, days from from Queen's College in the city, and uh, and then his hands, which is typical kind of Victorian hands at the time. So yeah, they're they're still here, and the originals are are preserved. And he wrote regularly and specifically about what he would have dined on and the whole culinary culture, if you like. And in fact, it was quite a lavish food culture that he got to enjoy, even though it was in the middle of the famine. He he did, and what's kind of extraordinary is. His nearly first letter home in eighteen forty nine is he he's telling um, he's telling his family about his journey from Cork to Dublin, uh, which would have taken much longer than today. So obviously he had more time to look around and, and kind of register what he was seeing. And uh, at that at that point he he is struck by by the destitution and the desolation uh, of the countryside. Um, so that was his first impression, which is interesting. But then when he comes to the city, he discovers a city that um, is talking about the provisions and the food here, which is varied and very diverse, and the cheapness of things like salmon and and fowl. Um, And he's talking about, he's staying in various different kind of lodgings initially, and he's talking about landladies who are supplying him with um, roast beef and goose and apple tarts and butter. Um, And uh, he's, he's kind of impressed by the quantities, I suppose. And then, because the university was new and, and he, he was an outsider, so he, he's integrated into the social circle uh, of, of, I suppose, what you might, might, might call the city elite, like the bishops and the Beamish family and so on. And in these contexts, he, 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 he discovers a very rich dining culinary culture. One of the letters um, he writes, he, he's at a, a social gathering where they start, the start for the dinner is turtle soup and champagne. And um, and and this is 1850. Uh, and I suppose this is, this is what happens then. You you see a bit more of the human coming out, the human side of, of George Bull, because um, he he also has to consider 
what, what he's faced, faced with in terms of this extravagance. And he makes the point that it's, it's just too extravagant for the time that Ireland is in and it's in bad taste. So I suppose what we see here is a kind of a, a social conscience on, 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 on the, the, the part of George Gould himself. So it's nearly like he feels guilty for being able to dine so well. I think he does, and, and he does, I think, and um, he, he feels that it's just too extravagant uh, uh, a concoction. Because if you, if you look at it, I mean, champagne, which is still a luxury uh, good, I suppose, and turtle soup, um, which is a very flamboyant creation. And, you know, with turtles being, you know, in many cases coming in live and they having to be butchers and so on. And the turtle soup was, was actually a popular um, soup uh, to, to be eaten at uh, events, social events, where you had large numbers. Um, so that in itself was fairly gruesomely extravagant, but part of the mores and the fashions of the time. But he doesn't feel that he can, uh, I suppose, partake in this with, with a clear conscience, obviously, in, in 1850. There is an unpublished 19th century recipe book that has given a bit of an insight into this era, and you've ad- adapted um, some of the recipes in it, I believe. I did. Well, I suppose what, just to get just to try and round the picture really of, of, of the, uh, the letters because the letters I suppose talk about the observations of food but then just to kind of get an idea of the, the culinary or the cooking culture really um, I, I suppose we're fortunate in UCC to have a collection of recipes um, that were started by a woman called Mary Honer who was from around Kinsale uh, region of, of area of Cork and she started her collection in the 1820s they go up into the 1840s and beyond and I suppose these are the kind of recipes that we would imagine that Boole would have met in his various uh, occasions of dining out and so on Um, and they're really interesting to read because you can see the different influences that are impacting on Irish food at the time and you can see Irish ones, you can see ones from the empire like recipes for curries many recipes for curry in fact uh, so they must have had a taste for spicy things. Uh, but the majority of the recipes are, are stalwarts of kind of British cooking. Uh, so there's loads of recipes for puddings, sweet and savoury puddings. Um, these are puddings that you would boil or you would bake in the oven because they're starting to bake more puddings in the oven at this period in time. So Mary Honer has a recipe for a college pudding, which I thought was very appropriate given, given our setting. So... Um, yeah, I adapted that one and we thought it might be nice and just a kind of a, a playful thing to do to call it George Bull's College Pudding for, for the year that's in it. There's no recipe for turtle soup in it, I suppose. There is not, but you do find recipes for turtle soup in the books that are coming out of England at the time. And some of the recipes, or some of the collections of recipes you find in, in Ireland. Not particularly this collection, but I have seen recipes for turtle soup and they... they they would, I suppose, offend contemporary sensibilities, really. I'm sure, yeah, absolutely. Now, you personally have an interest in 19th century food culture because you come from a, a generation of cork beggars, I believe, who would have started under the reign of Queen Victoria. Uh, yes, I do. Um, my family would have, um, I suppose, come in from outside County Cork into the city uh, in the late 19th century. Um, um, to start a uh, baking business and then it carried on up to my father's time unfortunately um, I suppose I have an interest in food alright but not the, the hands on side of it so um, 
Yeah, they were all bakers in the city, and it's kind of quite interesting because what happens, you know, we're talking about Boole and, and looking at the famine, and we're talking about the least cultures, I suppose, really, but what happens after the famine in Ireland in terms of food is that a lot of things happen and change and uh, um, at an accelerated pace relative to what was happening before. So I suppose we think we're in a period of much change now, but change is constant and so on. Um, and one of the things that happens after the famine is that uh, potatoes, the cultivation of potatoes retracts a bit because the population is reduced and everything. And um, for various different reasons, um, filling the gap of the, you know left by the potatoes in terms of a carbohydrate, it's filled by uh, baker's bread, which now is not available for the first time because it was, it was here before that, but it becomes more available, there's more bakers, it becomes cheaper. And it becomes kind of the carbohydrate of, of, of the people, really, um, um, as you go through the second half of the 19th century and then into the 20th century, of course. So that's what they were involved in. And I suppose they themselves were involved in a whole process of change, too, and uh, working with um, an increasingly popular industry in terms of small bakers and bread making. Um, UCC is actually one of the only Irish universities to recognise the importance of food and the culinary history and its its application to Ireland's food industry. And is that because, was that before you joined the university or is it kind of as a result of you joining the university and, and the areas that you specialise in? Oh, um, good. That would be a very big claim to claim. <laughs> um, but um, I suppose you, we're... UCC has one of the oldest, I suppose, um, schools or departments of food science in the country, actually, and um, in the earlier days, kind of specialising in, in milk and dairy. Um, and that's no surprise because we're, we're, we're in the Golden Vale and we're, the, the region is, is uh, it's probably the, one of the best re- regions in the country for producing milk. Um, so we have a very fine legacy in that respect and also in food business and so on. But I... I um, I'm also involved in, in, in teaching on a diploma in speciality food production, which looks at um, small-scale production, like artisan and speciality food production and so on. And I started teaching on that, um, you know, trying to introduce history and uh, of food and so on from an Irish perspective, just to give them a perspective on identities and how that identity could maybe be applied in terms of business development and so on, product development. Um, and then I, I run my own, some of my own, courses as well on food history and mm-hmm. uh, we're the first university to have a food writing module in the country for example which is coming out of the School of English here in UCC so um, I suppose we are trying to play our part in in, in developing uh, a sense of the food culture, you know the culture of food in Ireland apart from the business of the science. But and John McKenna of McKenna's Guides, he's involved in the food writing course? He is actually John was down last Friday with us so we have John McKenna from the, the McKenna's Guides um, we have Dennis Cotter from Cafe Paradiso in the city, whose restaurant actually w- was v- voted by TripAdvisor. Uh, it was it was selected and voted the best fine dining restaurant in Ireland, actually, just in the last few weeks. And then we have Darina from Ballymaloo, Darina Allen, who, who's on the course as well. So there's four of us involved. So it's a great course. I have yeah, it say. certainly is. Like four fantastic people for yeah. the students to learn from. Yeah. Well, it's all these letters and the recipe. They're all fascinating, uh, Regina. If people want to to get the recipe that you've adapted, is that available online? 
Um, we can make it available um, for anybody who's interested in the recipe, of course. We, we, we'd be delighted to extend that. And I can give you my email if you like, and if, if anybody is interested in seeing it. Um, just to tell people, um, it, it tastes like um, a mild Christmas pudding, actually. It's got all those kind of flavours of Christmas, like sherry, um, dried fruit, nutmeg and, and lemon. So it's got, it's, it's got the flavours of Christmas, but in a kind of a lighter uh, in a lighter version so that's what the pudding is and if anyone would like us I'm only too happy to extend the recipe of course and I've just been passed a note here to say that there is a hyperlapse that's, which is a 47 second speed it up demonstration of how to cook the pudding on oh, yeah, YouTube there yeah there is actually so So if I, people google that they probably find it there and there's a link to the recipe it says it'll be added shortly to text underneath the hyperlapse so I'm sure yeah, it'll so be coming say, online So yeah so anybody would go if you just google maybe George Bull pudding YouTube I, I'm, I'm sure it will come up well, hopefully it'll get a lot of hits now. And I thanks so much for too. talking to us about it this evening. And be sure to keep in touch with us and let us know what else you're up to down there at UCC. Um, by all means, and thank you for, for your interest in our story. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to tonight's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and if you're just joining us, before the break I was talking to Regina Sexton at UCC and Regina is food and culinary historian there and she had details about a collection of letters that reveal Ireland to be a country of feasting during the famine. Very interesting indeed. So don't forget to Google that hyperlapse video on YouTube. Never fear if you missed that or any of the show because it will all be up on the Best Possible Taste podcast later in the week along with all the previous shows and you'll find the podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show. And still to come tonight, we will be returning to a different part of the country but to another educational institution and that is to Dr Claire Gilsonen who is a culinary arts lecturer at GMIT and she is going to unravel the science behind our taste buds. Next though, I'm delighted to take you out and about on my travels when I came across Will Taylor from Glastree Farm Ice Cream who make a collection of award-winning products. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Will, it's lovely to meet you here in Dublin with your famous Glastry Farm ice cream. Tell me how this came about. Glastry Farm ice cream uh, dates back now 10 years almost to the day. And it's a follow-on from a very successful farming operation that dates way back to 1856. But I have felt increasingly as I move through my career that we really had to move a lot nearer the consumer than we were uh, right up till about 10 years ago. And hence, ice cream uh, appeared to be the logical product uh, to move it on from our pedigree dairy herd, uh, our very, very high quality milk, something like the top 3% in terms of compositional quality, bacteriological quality, and here we are. You say it was a logical progression, but you must have done some sort of research to see whether or not this was a viable market to get into. Yeah, yeah, it was a 
at least a three-year process. Uh, it initially started off with a, a Nuffield scholarship uh, that looked at the opportunities for, well, actually UK agricult ag agriculture in the new Europe, uh, which at that time had taken on the largest increase in terms of population uh, in the six or seven new accession countries. Uh, out of that came the spark uh, that launched us into uh, uh, a market research program, uh, which found a number of very, very interesting results. One was that uh, increasingly uh, the consumer, particularly the female consumer, uh, wanted low-fat products. They wanted clean products, as distinct from ones that uh, contain colorants and knee numbers and so on and so forth. And they were prepared to pay a very small premium for something local, something that had provenance uh, with the island of Ireland. And that guided us towards a product development program uh, with food technology. And those first six products that all had some sort of provenance uh, with the region uh, are still going today, which I think is uh, a fair uh, anomaly of how good that product development and market research was. Well, before we talk specifically about the six different products, was there a substantial investment in machinery and did you have to do a lot to work, of work to create a facility at your farm to make the ice cream? We were very fortunate that uh, at that particular point in time there was a fairly generous rural development programme and we availed of it. We got 50% uh, uh, funding for state-of-the-art uh, equipment. Obviously ice cream comes from Italy and uh, that was installed in a, a redundant building on the farm and basically the milk from the dairy herd uh, which is at one side of the farmyard, moves across to the ice cream plant at the other side of the farmyard and has turned into product. So it's fairly unique to have your own herd yeah. providing the milk to create your ice cream. I'd say a lot of ice cream manufacturers are sourcing their, their raw materials from elsewhere. Yeah, we, uh, we, we're totally integrated, totally self-sufficient. There's no... Uh, uh, raw materials, no milk or cream comes in from outside sources and uh, we're fully accredited. The farm itself is uh, what is known as Red Tractor Assured, which is uh, recognised by all the major supermarkets and the plant itself is uh, the baby of BRC accreditation called Salsa. So in effect we have independent accreditation from the grass in the fields right through to the final product. Let's do the fun part now and talk about the six different flavours that you have. We're going to start off with the white chocolate and blackberry. How did you come up with this flavour? Okay, uh, we have been looking around for uh, products that come from around the region and every, every lane in the country has its own blackberries at this time of the year so that's one of the inclusions and we use the white chocolate base uh, so many people uh, remember the sort of raspberry ripple type of 20 30 years ago well this is the modern version of it are you 
So you're trying to be innovative and come up with different flavours that people maybe haven't had before? Yeah, yeah. We, uh, on, the, on the display stand at the moment, we're showcasing two or three uh, relatively new products. Uh, one is Teeling Whiskey Ice Cream. Uh, which is a tie-up with the new distillery in Newmarket Square in Dublin, and uh, the Teeling whiskey is included with our base mix, and uh, it's got rave reports in the last few weeks since we launched it. Uh, the other one, of course, is uh, Yellowman Honeycomb, uh, which is uh, sold once a year at the Owl Lamosphere in Ballycastle last week in August and uh, we have taken the uh, Yellow Man which is made by a dedicated supplier and we have included it in our ice cream range and it's probably, well it's not probably, it's about the second most popular uh, product that we produce. A number of the products I see have got the Great Taste sticker on them so they are award winning products. Yeah, 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 we have We have a policy in the company of entering three products per year into uh, the Great Taste Awards, which once again is the independent assessment of the quality of a product. It's not Will Taylor claiming that this is uh, a whole battery of judges sitting down and blind tasting uh, a whole range of products and coming up with their recommendations. And over the last uh, five years, we have 16 Great Taste Awards. And this year, uh, we were very fortunate to get a double gold for our Ling Heather Honey Ice Cream. That sounds very unusual. Ling Heather Honey. Yep. Yep. These hives uh, are on the Spurn Mountains just behind Limavady. And uh, we're taking the product Ling Heather, as you probably know, flowers from now on right until the frost come. And hopefully the bees will do their work again and we'll have a plenty of full supply of Ling Heather uh, to put into our ice cream. So we're, we're absolutely chuffed that such a unique product uh, can get a double gold. Absolutely, and you developed it specifically for a very special dinner in Northern Ireland. Right. Uh, we uh, It was initially for the food and drink uh, dinner with something like four or five hundred guests uh, back a few months ago. And it went down well, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find coming to exhibitions and going to dinners like that where your product is there is a great way to get feedback from people and what they think about it? We find it extremely important uh, to... Uh, we have a whole range of uh, caterers, high-end caterers, who are involved in uh, all sorts of functions, corporate functions, weddings, uh, and so on, in some of the major uh, places in the island of Ireland. And uh, we, f- we think that's a great shop window. Uh, just imagine if you're doing a, a wedding and you have two or three hundred guests and they have a great dessert with a named ice cream, Glastry Farm ice cream on the menu. You have two or three hundred potential customers straight away. Absolutely, yeah. It's a great way to to gather up more customers. In terms of market research for different flavours, is that something that's ongoing? Are you always trying to bring out a new and different and innovative flavour? Sometimes my accountant daughter feels that uh, we spend far, far too much 
on innovation, but uh, the major part of our business is uh, into food service, into some of the most discerning chefs in the island of Ireland. And uh, while the vast majority of them are a joy to work with and a mine of information and ideas, uh, we bounce things off them. And uh, from that, we get we sift them out and we probably always have a shortlist of two or three uh, potential flavours that we want to develop and uh, innovation is part of the game and part of our game. It's I equate it uh, to being like our own dairy herd. Uh, there will be new heifers coming into the herd uh, every year and sad to say there will be some older girls who aren't for one reason or another uh, sticking the pace and they disappear and so it is with the ice cream business. Well you said you're celebrating 10 years this year, are you going to celebrate that with a nice big ice cream cake? (laughs) Yes, yes, all suitably decorated, yeah, happy birthday. (laughs) Lovely to talk to you and uh, continued success. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break I was out and about and met Will Taylor from the award-winning Glastry Farm Ice Cream and they did exceptionally well at the Blossnerin Awards and had a lovely pear sorbet which won, I think it got the, the gold in its category. So time now for one more interview this evening and when I was at the Blossnerin Awards I got to thinking about our taste buds and I became curious as to how they work. As chance would have it I met a fellow judge who is actually very knowledgeable in the area and Dr Claire Gilsonham, culinary arts lecturer from GMIT and she joins me on the line now. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Claire, it's great to have you on the programme this evening. I was thinking the other day about the taste buds and how they worked and what was the science behind it all. And I think this is something that you're well placed to explain to me and to the listeners. Definitely. But before we start talking about taste, I suppose the most important thing, Sharon, is really to talk about flavour. Because when we talk about taste, we're really only talking about sweet, sour, salty, bitter and umami. So say, for instance, um, you know, when might you ask yourself, does a, an onion taste like a, a, a strawberry, for instance? So really only when you hold your nose or only when you have a cold, because really you are only tasting sweet, sour, salty, bitter and umami, where your nose, the, the role that that plays and the flavour properties, the flavour volatiles in the air that you're picking up, it's really when you bite into the strawberry, you know, there you're getting, you're, you're actually smelling the, the flavour you know, but you're picking up the sweetness in the strawberry and then the, the fruity compounds, the floral compounds are all being delivered when you chew into that um, or when you bite into that uh, strawberry rather, those volatiles are reaching your um, there's an olfactory bulb in your nose that is picking out those different odours so taste, although it's it's vitally important and sometimes as well, like the, the whole thing, it's very very interesting, it's not really fair to say just the taste properties but actually our brain, how that manipulates um, flavour and colour, our, our sense of sight. So, for instance, let's say, you know, you had um, a range of brightly coloured beverages. And I'd say the lightest of those colours, the, the brain kind of 
uh, confuses uh, people and basically will tell you that that should be have the least intense flavour. But if I was to add uh, a food colouring into a, a beverage and flavour bright red and have it um, with the least amount of, let's say, sugar solution in it, you know, I would naturally think because it is the strongest colour that it should be the sweetest flavour. So it kind of, you know, our brain tricks us and then the same in terms of sound, when you bite into something, that will affect your, your sense of um, perception of flavour, whether it, it's good or bad. So, for instance, you know, if you think a hot day or something like that, you know, the, the sound sometimes on advertisements, the opening a can of Coke, for instance, when you hear that, um, like the fizz, you know, it, you, you think of quality. When you bite into a lettuce leaf and you hear the crispness of it, it's a quality indicator. So again, that can affect your sense of flavour. Um, and if we'll, you know, like as I say, taste is merely only sweet, sour, salty, bitter and umami. All these different faculties, even your mouth, I suppose, for instance, you know, the, the different trigeminal receptors. So they'd be responsible. When you chew a chewing gum with peppermint in it, you get that cooling sensation because um, the peppermint, you know, when it's the, like when it's, coated all over the mouth uh, causes a cooling sensation in, in the mouth where if you taste where if you bite into something like a chilli you feel that heat and burning sensation You mentioned umami there a few times you better explain to us what exactly that is because the sweet and the spicy people would be familiar with but not yeah. so much umami so Umami really is, it's kind of they, they, they look at it as um, savouriness, so when we talk about umami, you know you're getting if you taste something with umami in it, you get this kind of brothy, meaty flavour and it's, I suppose, primarily found in the likes of tomatoes, parmesan cheese associated with mushrooms and things like that. So that's exactly, I suppose it's really when you define it, it's this uh, the, your sense of savouriness you know, is what you're looking at. You're talking there about the brain and sight and I, like it's the taste buds are affected by a number of the different yeah. senses. Com- completely like you know th- like there's so many things you know coming together and like other things I suppose that affect you know our sense of taste you know it could be something like hunger for instance the, the old expression hunger makes a good sauce so depending on what time you eat so let's say you know if you didn't have your breakfast in the morning and you know you're going into lunch you could be absolutely starving and sometimes things might taste better because you're satisfying, you know, your hunger pang. Where if you had a big lunch um, and you're full and you go and taste something, again, like there's this uh, sense of uh, taste fatigue and odour fatigue as well. So often now if you're doing, um, or if people are doing sensory tests on odours, you know, you're generally not supposed to to smell any more than five or six odours at a time, Sharon, because what happens is people become older fatigued it's very hard for you know uh, just a regular consumer uh, to, to identify odors and generally with odors we associate them with memory so they might be able to when they smell something recognize you know if it's not that common a particular memory and they'll bring it back to that and they'll use um i suppose like the memories or even um words to to, to they, they'll find it hard to um, kind of verbalise what, what the flavour is but they'll use word associations 
I suppose other things that affect, you know, our, our sense of um, taste will be if you're a smoker, that can kind of dull your sense of taste and also natural substances, you know, even coffee. So, like, if I'm running a taste panel in the morning, you know, with a group, I'll always tell them don't take um, any sort of coffee, you know, or tea in the morning because it will affect your sense of taste. Um, and then the other thing to be mindful of is, is aging. Now, I suppose the average person has approximately 10,000 taste buds on your tongue and they'll kind of be replaced every two weeks. But as we get older, we start to uh, taste buds die off and they're not re- replaced. So it's kind of harder as well for people to properly, I suppose, analyse taste as they get older. Like, So does that mean then that their appetite for different types of food actually expands like they'll eat a, a more varied diet or they might eat things that they didn't like 10 years before completely yes yes very much so you know because of this because it's very interesting what you said there about the smokers and I know people that were smokers and did not like olives but whenever they became non-smokers they yes, realised yes. yeah they did like olives yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting because, you know, as I say, the smoking or certain medications or whatnot can alter the flavour or alter or alter the taste. And particularly, as I say, again, it's not just the, the taste, Sharon, because when we talk about taste, it merely is sweet, sour, salty, bitter and umami. It's really your nose as well. The, the combination of your nose and your mouth, how that plays such an important role in how we understand flavour perception. That's, I suppose, that ultimately is affecting, you know, uh, how you're how you're perceiving flavor flavor of a product or whatnot. So when you have a cold or if you're in a particularly unpleasant smelling venue, like that can all affect how you, how much or how little you're going to enjoy what you're going to eat. Exactly, and when you have a cold because that your nose is completely blocked up, it really goes to show you, you should be able to taste things. You should be able to still pick out sweet, sour, salty bitter but you won't get you you won't get the caramelized smell you won't get the sweet sweet kind of smell you know it's it's your nose that really is is affected and i suppose the other thing um i think there's something like a thousand receptors odor receptors in our noses and we can smell two thousand odorous compounds so when you have a cold that's completely blotted out and you're not really all you're you're doing is is able to taste you know and certain medications as well that people might be on can cause certain flavours to taste metallic too. So it's, you know, it's, it's the science behind it is hugely interesting. There's no doubt about that. So there's plenty of, of things that can actually affect the taste buds in terms of dulling them, like if you're not well or if you're on certain medications. Is there anything you can do to actually enhance you mentioned there about not having tea or coffee before you would go in to maybe, I suppose, if you're if you're taste, having a taste test at something or you're part of a focus yeah. group. Is there anything else that you should be doing? Should you be cleansing your mouth just with water or anything else? Well, what, what I would say, like what advice I'd give to people. So, for instance, if you're doing a sensory test, it's vital, you know, that when you taste one product that you cleanse your palate beforehand. Um, and again, I suppose strong mouthwashes, like if you have them, you know, before you go in to do a taste panel, they can also affect your mouth. But it's important between samples to take a, wa- a water cracker and drink some water to cleanse out the panel, uh, the palate rather. The other thing to be mindful of, if you're tasting spicy food, for instance, 
no amount of water sometimes can really clean the palate. So they generally advise that you eat something like a melon that's fairly bland or a yogurt. Have a, a, a glass of milk that'll actually clean the mouth properly out. You know, so it's it's good to be kind of mindful of of, of these things because particularly when we're talking about, I suppose, those trigeminal receptors within the mouth that cause you to feel that the pain after eating a chilli or after eating a spice. The only thing really that will clear your mouth of that heat is something like natural yogurt as well. You said earlier about when you're older, the taste buds kind of, they're dying off a bit. But whenever a child, a person is a baby, and they've never actually tasted anything other than formula or breast milk. Like whenever you're introducing them, then you're like to the pureed carrots and yeah. pear and whatnot. Like, what stage are their taste buds at then? I suppose they're they're they're, they're like at the very early stages. They they did some studies where they get babies kind of you know they're, they're just looking. I suppose at the sweet and sour or sorry the the sweet and bitter taste, and they just recorded, I suppose, facial reactions of um, babies' faces when they had given them a solution, maybe with a little bit of, with a, sorry, milk, with a little bit of sweetness in it, they had a certain quantity of sugar in it, and likewise, the bitterness, they had some a tiny amount of quinine in it. And they just, the, the study, like, they're, they're only really looking, at, I suppose, at the taste properties, but they just re- recorded that, obviously, the child, um, you know, smiled and was quite happy to have the, the, the sweet but didn't you know they were completely obsessed and cried their eyes out when they, they had the quinine my sister actually is fructose intolerant she like uh, she, she can't have any sugar in her diet but when she was pregnant with her first daughter Aoife they were worried that she might pass on the gene to her she tried to source a baby food that had no sugar in it and the only one on the Irish market was SMA food and Marie when she was a baby her physical symptoms were that she was regurgitating all the food that she was eating very unusual and rare case very interesting yeah Yeah, Yeah. very interesting thanks so much for talking to me about it this evening not at all I was delighted to talk cheers chin chin salut schleinte that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate the company. And of course, thanks to all of tonight's guests, Sid Sheehan, Regina Sexton, Will Taylor and Claire Gilsonham. I'll be back next week. Until then, mind yourself and bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!